This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Season 2, Episode 20, Riots, Looting, Curfews, and Chaos in America's Cities. Is Police Brutality the True Cause? Here in San Francisco, Monday marked our second night of curfew, which is a rare occurrence in San Francisco. Even after the 1989 7.1 earthquake, we did not have curfews. But on this occasion, because of widespread rioting and looting, the mayor imposed a 10-hour overnight curfew on Sunday night and Monday night, and it was enforced with arrests made for noncompliance, especially in the central downtown areas of the city. In general, San Franciscans complied with the stay indoors dusk-to-dawn curfew, and curfews are likely to continue tonight, Tuesday night, and beyond. Why? First, a curfew is an effective tool to get people off the streets. And if you fail to comply, you can be arrested. Keeping people off the streets prevents crowds from assembling, and it prevents crowds, most importantly, from being hijacked into riotous bands who go on to attack property, who loot businesses, who cause mayhem and even murder to innocent bystanders. But why are they doing this? Is the nationwide civil unrest due to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis one week ago? Or have the widespread riots and looting used that act of police brutality as a pretext to further other political ends. Antifa, the organized protest movement, and Antifa stands for anti-fascist, has been active and visible at these riots. Or are the riots being fueled by the anti-Trump resistance, which has never accepted that he won the presidency in 2016? And has the response to the violence by America's mayors and governors been too weak and too lax? We will explore all of these issues and causes of the chaos in our podcast today. And this will be the first of several podcasts where we explore the issue of policing in America. But first, let's start with some statistics on America's highly decentralized law enforcement infrastructure. There are historic reasons for the nation's loose patchwork of policing traditions that go back to our very founding as a nation 250 years ago, and even before that, to the 17th century and colonial times. People came to this country to escape oppressive regimes. People came here looking for freedom. And even to this day, police controls and regulations that might seem normal and commonplace in other countries, Americans will chafe at. That is our tradition. That is in our DNA. Unlike most European countries, the United States does not have a centralized, unified, 
police force, answerable to a senior government minister. I'm thinking of France, Italy, Germany, Ireland, many of Spain, many of the European countries have a national police force which is answerable to a senior government minister in the capital city. We do not have that in America. The benefit of centralization is a series of standardized rules and regulations created at a national level and applied locally and uniformly. That's clearly the benefit of the European approach. Again, we do not have that. We have a very diffuse system. Here, the tradition of local control of the police dates from the earliest colonial times, as I said. Add to that the tradition of 50 different state jurisdictions, vast differences, isolated communities, and a tradition of robust politics, and you can see the foundations of a very different policing tradition here. The population of the United States in 2020 is 331 million. In 1960, according to the census of 1960, our population was 180 million. We have increased the population by 150 million people in the last 60 years, which is essentially a 50% increase in our population. There are 800,000 sworn police officers in the United States, which represent approximately 0.25% of the population as a whole, and that gives us a ratio of about 3.5 police officers for every 1,000 Americans. I think that ratio is broadly comparable to countries in Western Europe. So far, the numbers are understandable, and as I said, broadly comparable to other Western democracies. After all, this is a country which stretches from the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific, to the Atlantic, to the Caribbean, and 3.5 million square miles. But where the U.S. diverges sharply from the Western model is the structure of governance of the police and the command and control ecosystem of our police forces. America has 17,985 police departments spread across a landmass of 3.5 million square miles for a population of 331 million people. Yes, you heard that number right. 17,985 police departments, which include traditional city and county police forces, as well as sheriff's departments, highway patrol bodies, and federal police. In the United States, we have 3,100 counties, 3,140 counties, and every single county has its own sheriff's department. The sheriff's department in a county, for instance, is responsible for providing rudimentary public safety controls out in the countryside, number one, and number two, most importantly, 
responsible for administering the county jail and also for providing backup for law enforcement backup for the administration of justice in the courts. So again, traditional police forces at the city and county level, sheriff's departments, highway patrol bodies, and federal police. The vast proportion of law enforcement bodies is a reflection of the vast numbers of local government entities in this country. Again, we have to remember, if we've ever forgotten, we have to remember that we inhabit a continent-sized country. So there are 89,476 local government entities in the United States, 89,476. And that includes 19,495 incorporated cities, many of which, if not all of them, certainly many of them, have their own police departments. There are 10 cities in the United States with a population of 1 million or more. There are 310 cities with populations of 100,000 or more. And there are 14,768 cities and towns with populations of less than 5,000. So as large as the population is in America, it is spread out over 3.5 million square miles. We have a long tradition of local self-government, even in some of the smallest towns. You might remember the Mayberry Police Force on the Andy Griffith Show in the early 1960s. There you had the police chief, Andy Griffin, and his deputy, Barney Fife. It was a two-man police force, and they, did, they provided all the police services to the little town of Mayberry. There are still many small police departments like that in America, with one or two person police forces providing public safety services to their communities. Governance and training in police departments vary widely. Most police chiefs are appointed by the mayor. Many larger city police forces also have the governance of a citizen police commission, which is also appointed by the mayor. The mayor is a very powerful, powerful position in the American local government lexicon. Both the chief and the commission serve at the pleasure of the mayor. The mayor can fire the chief and the commission at any time for any reason. They serve at the pleasure of the mayor. As a result, the chief of police and the office of the chief of police and police departments as a whole are highly politicized. And that comes as a result of the fact that the mayor makes that appointment. And so you don't have uniform standards of training and professional conduct because of that highly politicized and non-civil service approach to the police forces and appointments of the most senior leadership roles in our police departments. Nor 
do we in this country have a minister of the interior and in the European sense um, at the federal level in Washington with all of the police in the country reporting into a cabinet minister, cabinet secretary in Washington and subject to the decisions of that kind of a secretary? We don't have that kind of centralization in the United States. The American policing tradition is localized and reflective of local standards. For instance, we have, you think of the Northeast of this country, states like Connecticut and Massachusetts, where the local citizenry expects a very high touch level of involvement from their police and a very high touch approach to public safety. Um, gun control is a big issue back in, <clears throat> in states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. Compare and contrast that to the Western states and Western traditions, Western states like Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Alaska, where, for instance, gun rights are very important, where people tend to live out in the country where local public safety uh, standards and police are few and far between, if they exist at all. So again, throughout this country, because of our very diverse geography and the great distances that we cover, we have very strong regional disparities and differences in regards to the police force and what is expected of the police force from region to region, state to state, and that is, uh, that, that is a function of our geography and our political tradition. It's also part of the tradition of the sense of freedom and frontier of this country, which when you talk about the frontier and the spirit of the frontier in, the con in an urban context, if you're in New York City or Chicago, or downtown LA, those urban experiences are so far removed from that tradition of the, <clears throat> of the frontier. However, when you get even into Northern California, away from the large cities of San Francisco and San Jose and Oakland, you head across the Golden Gate Bridge north into counties north of Santa Rosa. And there in those counties, and not that far from San Francisco, you do have a sense of the rural independence, self-reliance, where public safety services don't exist and where you are self-reliant. So you have that tension of this tradition of the urban need for public safety standards and the rural frontier tradition of relying on yourself for those public safety services for yourself and your family. Let's come back to some of the largest police forces in this country uh, that have been featured on cable TV coverage for the past week. And in particular, we'll come back to the Minneapolis Police Department. The demands on the largest U.S. police forces are similar to what you would see in London, Paris, Frankfurt, Madrid, Amsterdam. Those demands include such complex issues as 
the of anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism, anti-organized crime, narcotics, the bomb squad, anti-gang activity. Again, our largest cities are faced with those threats, and therefore they have to provide very complex and sophisticated public service, public safety uh, services, such as counterterrorism, which the smaller cities do not have to supply. And then on top of that, add an overlay, even in those large cities, of a traditional commitment and demand from the community for community policing and traditional cop-on-the-beat work. And you can see that the larger forces, such as New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, have many competing demands with modest to, in some cases, virtually no federal support. Just to give you some numbers, the largest American urban police forces are, as you would expect, New York with 38,000 officers, Chicago with 11,900 officers, Los Angeles, the third largest, with 9,900. Washington, D.C. has 3,800 officers. San Francisco has 2,100. And Oakland, adjacent to San Francisco, has 747. Minneapolis, Minnesota, has a police force of 800. Training standards vary from force to force, and the training is in large measure a reflection of the kind of threats that are faced within those communities. For instance, in New York, counterterrorism, huge threat, big demand on local policing resources for counterterrorism training for the police, narcotics training for the police, bomb squad training for the police, smaller police forces, those kind of training and standards are not required at all. So training standards vary from force to force, and also recruitment standards are non-standard. Former soldiers, next military, of course, are an important source of recruits, but by no means the sole source of recruits. College degrees have become an increasing requirement in many, not most, but many police departments. And training in psychology and sociology are also disciplines, educational disciplines, which are favored in police departments. Wages and benefits generally are comparable to the private sector and in some cases are actually better than private sector companies. Let's come back to Minneapolis with because they've been in the news so much. The Minneapolis Police Department is headed by Chief Arredondo. Officer Derek Chauvin, the accused officer who killed Mr. George Floyd, had a record of 18 citizen complaints against him. And in fact, Amy Klobuchar, the senator of Minnesota, when she was the U.S. attorney for Minnesota, she actually had to confront a case with involving Chauvin, which she apparently stepped away from. I don't know all the circumstances, 
But the point is, this was a police officer who was on the radar screen of even Amy Klobuchar, who subsequently became the U.S. senator. So this was a police officer who had a record. We know he had 18 complaints against him. Yet, where was the chief, Chief Arredondo, in disciplining this man and getting him out of the force? He was clearly a bad apple. Where was the leadership? Where was the, uh, where was the chief in getting rid of this bad apple? He was left on the job by the Minneapolis Police Department. And clearly, he was a powder keg waiting to explode. And we saw him explode on tape, on TV, as he killed on live TV Mr. George Floyd. This is unforgivable. None of his three fellow officers intervened to get him off George Floyd. And first of all, as a police officer, even the most basic training, you would think, would tell you if you see excess force being used by one of your partners, stop him. But none of the three other officers who accompanied him there and who were present during the attack, none of them pulled him off Mr. Floyd. Again, it was an abdication of both their professional responsibility as police officers and even the most basic standards of common human decency, a complete breakdown. It was a lack of leadership at every level, both by the chief for not getting rid of this uh, rogue police officer. It was a, and of course, the mayor. How on earth could the mayor who appointed Arredondo as the chief, leave him in place. And of course, the mayor, there's, uh, the mayor has a lot to answer for. He was the one who gave the command, I think on Friday night, to abandon one of the Minneapolis police stations and precincts, which was then attacked and seized and looted and sacked by demonstrators and burnt to the ground. And the the mayor, Mayor Fry of Minneapolis, his response was, well, it's just bricks and mortar and nobody was killed, so let's move on. No, that was wrong. The fact that you had riotous extremists sacking a police station gave Dutch courage throughout the United States to all of the other demonstrators to to go for it and in the most negative sort of way. So that mayor, Mayor Fry of Minneapolis, has a lot to answer for, both in fanning the flames of the demonstration by abandoning the police station, secondly, in not insisting that Chief Arredondo fire Chauvin, and to make sure that Chief Arredondo had the, uh, had the leadership skills to root out bad actors as a chief, one of the first requirements of being a manager. The Floyd case has now been taken over by the minister, excuse me, by the Minnesota attorney general. So our hope and expectation is that even though uh, the officer has been charged with third degree manslaughter, uh, our hope and expectation is that with the high level involvement of the Minnesota Attorney General, 
that he will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Again, the issue of overlapping jurisdictions with so many law enforcement agencies is an ongoing threat to the fair, efficient, and timely policing in this country. In San Francisco, for instance, there are seven law enforcement agencies that have broad jurisdiction in the 49 square miles that make up our city by the bay. And those seven law enforcement agencies, police, police, if you will, are the San Francisco Police Department, the BART Police, BART is our regional transit system, the University of California Police Force, which has jurisdiction on all University of California properties in San Francisco, and there are many of them spread throughout the city, the San Francisco State University Police Force, which has jurisdiction on all state university property and adjacent neighborhoods to the university, the Park Police, which has jurisdiction in our parks, and most importantly, in the large Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, the San Francisco Sheriff Department, which is responsible for our jails in San Francisco, as well as for providing law enforcement muscle in the case of law enforcement and in the court system and the processing of criminals through the court system, and then finally federal agencies. So in this city of 850,000 people in 49 square miles, we have seven law enforcement agencies. The proximate cause of the riots and the looting was the George Floyd atrocity, without a question. But the civil unrest, which has continued more than a week after his tragic death, has been co-opted by a host of bad actors who have taken advantage of the situation and add to that a very fragmented police command and control structure throughout the country. And you can understand why we are seeing so much chaos on the streets of America. Add to that 10 weeks of confinement at home because of COVID-19, as well as people losing their jobs and homes, and that gives another dimension to the frustration which has lit this powder keg. We will continue to report on the issue of policing in America in the coming weeks. It's a very large and broad issue, which we obviously cannot cover adequately in one podcast. My sources for today's podcast include the New York Police Department, the San Francisco Police Department, the Chicago Police Department, the Washington, D.C. Police Department, and the Minneapolis Police Department. This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from San Francisco, America's favorite city. <laughs>